desperation. Pass by, oh pass by, dread skeleton. I'm still young. Go, please. Do not touch me with your cold hand. The first stanza in Claudius' poem, The Prayer of the Maiden, is a plea to be spared. It's the desperation of a young person who is not ready to die. That same sentiment, a version of that same prayer is whispered every night in neonatal units up and down the country. Parents who told, being told that their infant is gravely ill and they die, sit in vigil at the cot side, watching the monitors above their infant, graphically displaying the infant's vital signs. Each time the numbers dip or falter, the parents' own breath stops. Their own heart misses a beat. The place where I worked for half of my life, newborn intensive care, is a strange, disquieting, discomforting environment. It's a place where the cliched miracle of life is witnessed each day, but it's also a place where a second seeming miracle occurs, the extinguishing of life and hope. In a world where medicine and medical technology seem to know no bounds, the death of a newborn appears to defy rational explanation or expectation. It too is a kind of miracle. The aim of this talk is to reflect on that phenomenon. A plan over the next 40 minutes or so is to explore some of the challenging ethical questions that arise in the care of dying newborn infants. To help do this, I'm going to draw on a piece of music that you just heard, on philosophy and on my own experience. The aim is to shed light on a question that is uncomfortable, one that most of us shy away from. Ethical discussions about these types of decisions tend to focus on the question of the value of life or on quality of life. I'm going to look at the other side of the coin, on the value of death, on the quality of dying. In particular, I'm going to look at whether there's such a thing as a good way to die and what that means for medical care. I'm going to talk about newborn infants. That's where I do my medical work, but you may see in this, we may discuss at the end some relevance for all of us for the questions that we face at the end of our lives. The quiet room. Many newborn units have a room set aside for private discussions with parents. It's euphemistically called the quiet room, but amongst experienced parents, those who've been in the neonatal unit for some time, it's sometimes called by its nickname the room of doom. Parents who've been in the intensive care unit dread being summoned from the bedside uh, to sit in that close claustrophobic space. The decoration is benign, the furniture comfortable, but tucked away in the corner is a tissue box. A few years ago I sat in the quiet room with a couple who I would call Bianca and Tom, whose baby Howe had a cardiomyopathy, that's a sickness and a weakness of the heart muscle in adults can be caused by uh, coronary vascular disease, damage from medication, sometimes by infection. In babies, it's often related to an inborn genetic or metabolic disorder. In the most severe cases, there is no cure. The heart swells until it fills the baby's chest. It weakens until it fails and then stops. Hal had been diagnosed before birth with this condition and in fact had initially seemed to fare better than expected. We still weren't sure what the exact cause was of his heart problem. However, all the tests looking for potentially treatable uh, or temporary causes had come back negative. In the last day or so, particularly in the last few hours, 
Hal's breathing had become more laboured. He was receiving oxygen, but this wasn't enough. Blood tests showed that he was not keeping up, that the carbon dioxide in his bloodstreams were rising to dangerous levels. If things continued, I expected that he would start to have pauses in his breathing. These would become longer and more prolonged. At some point, his breathing would stop and not start. Bianca and Tom struggled as any would to, ex to accept the news that I was trying to convey, that Hal's condition was worsening, that he was dying. They'd been researching on the internet about cardiomyopathy in infants. Much of that information was bleak and worrying, but they found several things that they felt could help. Hal could go on a ventilator that would relieve some of the strain on his heart, a breathing machine. If that wasn't enough, he could go on to a heart replacing machine, a heart-lung bypass machine, or ECMO. Neither of these would solve the problem, but they would potentially buy some time. He could have a heart transplant. That would solve the problem of weakness in his heart. Uh, Tom had even found some information about experimental treatments being tested in mice for the genetic causes of cardiomyopathy. I listened quietly to Tom. He was a successful executive, used to identifying problems, finding solutions, implementing them. He was talking quickly, firmly, brooking no disagreement. Bianca was saying little. She was looking at the floor, holding scrunched in her hand, a tissue that I'd given her at the start of the conversation. I was listening and nodding, but what I was hearing was not the details of the newspaper reports, websites, and scientific journals that Tom was referring to. What I was hearing was a desperate need to find some way out of a dark place a need to find some way of avoiding, or at least putting off, the loss of a much-loved child. I was hearing the maiden's cry. Tom's research into possible treatments for his son is not unusual or even uncommon. Many of you would have read newspaper reports around the court cases, around medical treatment for Alfred Evans just uh, in the last couple of months, Charlie Gard last year. In these high-profile cases, parents desperately need to find treatment and led them to doctors overseas who were offering various treatments for their children. So I listened to Tom's suggestions and I understood where they came from. But the problem with all of these things was that none of them were likely to help. We'd already considered the option of heart-lung bypass and transplantation. We discussed Hal's condition with the transplant team in London. However, they felt that his condition was too far gone for them to be able to help. There was nothing they could offer. Gene therapies might one day be able to help children in this situation, but they would be far too late to help Hal. I could put him on a breathing machine, but it wouldn't stop him dying. It would merely delay for a matter of hours or days. Despair. One of the things that drives parents' desperate search for treatments for cure is that the alternative is unpalatable, awful, abject. Schubert wrote the lead that you've heard about, that's called Untimädchen, based on Matthias Claudius' poem of the same name in February 1817. In his late teens, he'd been working as a school teacher for several years. He hated it. Uh, from late 1816, age 19, he'd obtained leave of absence from the school. He spent the equivalent of a, a gap year in modern uh, uh, parlance, eight months living with a friend, free board and lodgings, composing full time. That's when he wrote this song. When he returned to the theme of the song seven years later, his circumstances had dramatically changed. In 1823, Schubert 
had been extremely unwell, impoverished, unable to write music, and with very few performances of his words. In February, he wrote elliptically uh, in a letter that the circumstances of my health still do not permit me to go outside the house. And many biographers have concluded in retrospect that he was quarantined with the first manifestations of a socially unacceptable sickness. At the period, the symptoms and the prognosis of such an infection would have been well known. In May, he penned a poem, Mind Beaver, which includes the frankly suicidal lines. I in torture go my way, nearing doom's destructive day. Take my life, my flesh and blood, plunge it all in Lethe's blood. At some point during that year, Schubert was treated in hospital. In August, he wrote that he almost despaired of entirely feeling well again. By the end of the year, he was apparently somewhat improved, allowed to go out, but in early 1824, with a recurrence of his symptoms, his mood was extremely low. The end of March, the same month that he composed a piece of music that you just listened to, he wrote, I feel myself to be the most unhappy and wretched creature in the world. Imagine a man whose most brilliant hopes have come to nothing, to whom the joy of love and friendship have nothing to offer but pain. My peace is gone, my heart is sore, I shall never find peace again, never again. Some of Schubert's dark despair, his grief at opportunities and a future loss, seems very similar to the things that parents describe when they have experienced the death of a child or anticipate when they see it coming. One mother, 18 days after the death of her infant from congenital heart disease, writes, To say that I miss my son does not adequately express how I feel. I ache for him with every fibre of my being. His death has left a hole in my heart that neither time nor patience will ever completely heal. The words despair and desperation come from the same source. For those who remember their high school French, uh, they'll recognise the common elements, espoir, espirit, to hope, and the from, without. If desperation is the intense desire to cling on to the threads of hope, despair is what is less left once those strands have invaded your grasp and you are left empty-handed. One of the most difficult questions that I ever have to answer in the quiet room is this. So, are you saying there's no hope? How can you answer that question? To answer no seems hearts cruel. The temptation is to hedge. No one wants to upset parents in that situation. It's easier to offer parents a lifeline, perhaps expressing some of our inevitable uncertainty. Well, never say never. It's difficult to be completely certain. I can't rule out the possibility that things will improve. Babies always, can always surprise us. That answer avoids extinguishing parents' hope, but it also comes with its own risk that it will prevent parents from preparing for what seems virtually inevitable and makes it more difficult to make important decisions about their child's care towards the end of their life. A different hope. Give me your hand, O oh sweet and lovely maiden. I'm a friend, and do not come to harm. Do not cry, I am not cruel. You will sleep softly in my arms. 
In Claudius' poem, the figure of death tries to offer reassurance to the dying maiden. I am not cruel, he insists. I'm a friend. In Schubert's lead, sung so beautifully by Anna just earlier, death's voice whispers pianissimo this repeated low insistent plea that you've heard. A soothing, consoling voice. This sort of consolation might seem familiar when we think of an elderly person at the other end of life. We'd still talk about the old man's friend, pneumonia. But does it make any sense to, to think of death as a friend when it comes to a baby who's dying? I think many might find it jarring, off-key. They might imagine not a friend, but a malign, evil spirit. In Renaissance German art, the image of death from the maiden, which inspired Claudius centuries later, death has the image of a seducer, or even a molester. This is no friend. For myself, I find the image unhelpful, not because I find I see death as malevolent, more because I just don't find the embodiment of death at all plausible. There is no hooded spirit lurking in the shadowy corners of the intensive care unit. There's no spectral figure swooping through the corridors of the nursery, plucking the souls from slumbering infants. But there is something in Claudius's verse and in Schubert's musical imagining of death's serenade that is worth exploring. Some years ago when I was trying to work out how to answer this very difficult question, I found some very helpful advice by a couple of uh, US ecologists and palliative care physicians, Anthony Bach and Robert Arnold. Faced with the is there any hope question, they suggested that you shouldn't answer either yes or no. They suggested a different response. Well, there, there are all sorts of things that people can hope for. Tell me what goes through your mind when you think about hope. Asking parents about their hopes, their priorities, sometimes helps to shift discussions away from medicine and medical treatments to other more important topics. In conversations like the one I had with Bianca and Tom, it's easy to get caught up in discussions about blood gases and ventilators and ventilator settings, the state of current scientific knowledge, genetic possibilities, things in the future. Sometimes these things are important to talk about, they can't be avoided but they often leave no space or energy or air to talk about other things. When I asked Bianca and Tom about their hopes, Tom replied immediately in much the way that we might imagine. He hoped that Harold would recover, would continue to defy doctors' expectations. He stopped there. There was nothing else to say. Bianca seemed to be saying very little, so I asked her separately what she was hoping for. She muttered that, yes, of course, she was hoping for how to survive, but I pressed her gently. What else? Is there anything else? She mentioned that she hoped to be able to hold him. She wanted to be able to take him home. She hoped that he wasn't suffering. The starting point for these conversations is whether the infant will live. But sometimes that's not an option, much as we might regret it. It's not something that either the parents or the health professionals have any control over. Sometimes the only options remaining are about how the baby lives, for the time remaining to them, how they live and how they die. We need to talk about those different hopes. Can death be good? What would it mean for a death to be good? 
For those who haven't experienced death in a close family member or friend, that idea can seem strange, even coherent. How could death possibly be good? But death can certainly be bad. Schubert again. He wrote his quartet in 1824, age 27. He then had several years of musical creativity, prosperity. However, within three years, his health had deteriorated. Schubert confided in friends that he feared he was nearing his death. In late 1828, Schubert moved to his brother Ferdinand's house in the suburbs of Vienna in the hope that the fresh air would help. However, on October the 31st, 1828, his brother described the start of a decline. During the meal, Schubert pushed his food away after the first mouthful, complaining that it tasted like poison. And some suggested that his altered taste was a result of the mercury that people had been using to treat the sickness. He ate and slept little in the days thereafter. Fatigued and weak, Schubert took to his bed. He wrote this in his last letter on the 12th of November. I'm ill. I've eaten nothing for eleven days and have drunk nothing. I totter feebly and shaken from my chair to bed and back again. Brina is treating me. If I ever take anything, I'll bring it up at once. Schubert's friend Lachner, himself a composer, visited him on the 17th of November. When I came into his room, he was lying with his face turned to the wall in the deepest feverish delirium. Added to this was scanty nursing and a badly heated room on the walls of which the damp was running down. Another friend, the same day, described Schubert raving violently. The next day, the day before he died, Schubert had the delusion that he'd already been buried. He begged his brother, take me to my room. Do not leave me in this corner under the earth. Do I deserve no place above the earth? He died the following afternoon. Here's another death, more recent. Alfie Evans was the Liverpool infant whose parents earlier this year lost a, a long legal battle over his medical treatment. Many of you will have seen the newspaper or television reports. Uh, although the exact cause of Alfie's condition wasn't diagnosed, it may help to, to explain he had a form of dementia. We're accustomed to this in, in our elderly family members. However, sometimes cruelly this strikes young people, even very young infants. In Alfie's place, he had declined to the point that he could no longer breathe without help. In December 2016, he was put on life As in house case, the ventilator could delay Alfie's death, but it couldn't prevent it. There was then a long period more than 12 months, while Alfie's parents and doctors were unable to reach agreement about how to care. One of the reasons for the disagreement was deep concern for the nature and circumstances of Alfie's death. Although it was always expressed in these terms, I think the health professionals were worried that keeping Alfie alive on life support was imposing on him, or at least risk, a bad death. They thought it would be bad for Alfie to die attached to life support machines perhaps away from his family, perhaps receiving futile attempted cardiac massage. One of the reasons they didn't want him transferred overseas was the possibility that he would deteriorate suddenly and die in trance. Ironically, the circumstances of the final part of Alfie's life after withdrawal of life support were such that he did not avoid what seems to me at least a bad death. 
For a variety of reasons, it was impossible for him to leave hospital. Newspaper reports, which I find distressing to read, indicate that at the end, Alfie's father gave him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation for 10 minutes in a desperate attempt to keep him up. Why these things, Alfie or Schubert bad? In what, in what way were they bad? There seems to me to be a number of different ways to evaluate death. Why? Death is bad in one important way because it deprives the person of a valuable future life. The better and longer that future, the worse it is to die. On this account, premature deaths like the young musical genius Schubert or an infant like Hal or Alfie are particularly bad. However, there must be something more to say than that because even if someone dies at an advanced age, we can still believe, imagine that they can die badly, very badly. Conversely, even for someone dying very young, there might be ways that they could experience a good, or at least a better, death. Two, death can be bad experiential, in terms of experience. Dying can obviously be bad if it involves pain or distress, suffering. One of the reasons for thinking that Schubert's death was bad are that these reports of his agitation, confusion, angst in the days before he died. Conversely, the presence of feelings of comfort, reassurance, awareness of friends being close, these might make for a good death. But sometimes these elements of, of experience, subjective experience, may not apply. For example, in Alfie's case, it appeared most likely that he was completely unaware of his surroundings because of the severity of his end-stage dementia. Some of you may recall the very famous UK legal case of Tony Black. Tony was a teenager who uh, was crushed in the Hillsborough football stadium disaster in 1989. He suffered severe brain damage, was left in a persistent vegetative state. Four years later, when the doctor's aunties, with the support of his family, applied to the court to stop the medical treatment that was keeping him alive, the court heard evidence that Tony had no awareness, no ability to sense either pleasure or pain. In such a situation, it seems that there could be no way from the point of view of experience, that death could be either good or bad. Three, death can be bad in a different way if it occurs in a way that's against the wishes of the individual. I don't know what Tony Bland's wishes were. Uh, I don't know if he ever imagined it. I imagine that he did. Most young people don't. Uh, that he might be in such a situation. However, if he had had such a wish, that he didn't want to be kept alive in this way, then it seems that having been kept alive in hospital and uh, sustained was bad for Tony because it went against his express wishes. However, this element of the value of death can't apply to young children or, or young children or infants. They never had a chance to develop views or wishes about the manner of their death. Four. Death can be good or bad because of its effects on those around the dying person. That includes obviously family members, friends, but it might also include the carers and health professionals who are, who are close by. This consideration obviously is extremely relevant for children, even very young children. One of the fundamental concerns of, of paediatric palliative care is to support the child's family, helping them 
to make the most of the time they have with their child, to help them create, if possible, some positive memories of the last part of their child's life. For some families, it might be important to take a child home. For others, that prospect is too distressing or sick there. They might prefer the familiarity and support of the hospital, or to go to uh, one of the, go to a hospice and spend uh, the last part of the child's life in that environment. Of course, the challenge in cases like that, the infant Alfie, is that his parents had a very different view from the medical team about what kind of death would be good or bad, both for them and for him. I suggested that death can be bad when it deprives us of a future that we would value, when it's painful or associated with suffering, when it occurs in a way that is contrary to the patient's wishes or values, and where it's distressing or traumatic for the families and the family. To put it in the opposite way, more positive way, death can be good if it doesn't deprive us of future valuable life, if it's associated with comfort and consolation, if it's consistent with the patient's values and preferences, and is not distressing for the individual family. That might be all there is to say about the value of death. However, I'm going to suggest that there might be one more element. Reflecting on cases like Tony Bland, I think there's a, a temporal element to evaluating death. One of the reasons not to provide certain forms of medical treatment to Tony Bland was the sense that these were not prolonging his life, rather they were prolonging his dying. In the famous verse of Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. One of the reasons the doctors of Tony Bland and his family went to court is because of the sense that it was time, in fact long past time, for him to die. Similarly, when the court heard the case about the evidence, he had already been sustained in intensive care without any possible uh, apparent prospect of improvement for more than a year. He'd been dying, in a sense, slowly for all that time. If he was experiencing pain, that gives us a good reason to think that was a terrible thing to do. However, even if he was completely unaware, it still could seem to be potentially bad to prolong his dying phase without any prospect of death. How can we make sense of this temporal element to dying? Well, one way would be to draw an analogy with literature. Death can be good or bad in the same way that a final chapter of a book can be good or bad. A bad final chapter casts a pall over the whole book. The narrative or story of someone's life is crucially affected by how it ends. Of course, the final chapter of a life could be bad in any of the ways I've already described, but a final chapter can also be bad in its dimensions. If it's too brief or abrupt, it leaves the reader gasping, turning the pages looking for something more. But it can also be too long and drawn out, unbalancing the earlier writing through the writer's inability to conclude. Another analogy, and one most apt for today, is with music. Just as with literature, a poor conclusion to a piece of music casts a shadow over all that has gone before. In classical music, a, a cadence and a sequence of chords that brings closure to the end of a piece one of the most familiar cadences to appreciators of Western classical music is what's called the perfect cadence. This is a transition from the tonic, the tonic chord to the dominant, and then back to the tonic. The end of the piece of music that you've just heard ends with uh, just one of these cadences, 
going from G major to D major to G. It leaves the listener feeling satisfied, resolved, the music has reached its conclusion. However, there can be much less satisfactory ways of ending a piece of music. An interrupted cadence is one where the transition of chords leaves the listener expecting resolution or something else, but there's none. Many will also be familiar with pieces of music that seemed to drag beyond the point where they should have stopped. The authors run out of musical ideas, repeats material or stretches material unnecessarily. The overlong, over-descended ending distorts the shape of the piece of music, just like the bad final chapter of all. Lives, like pieces of music, can be long and symphonic, with complex structures, many moving parts, multiple themes and transitions, or they can be brief, concise, fleeting melodies comprising only a few notes or chords. It might seem like the value of a good conclusion is most important with a life or a musical work that is long and complicated and rich in experience and texture. On the contrary, the ending of a short song or life is disproportionately important. The lives of some newborns are measured in minutes. It's all the more crucial, if we can, to take care about how those minutes are spent and how they conclude. They are, to draw another analogy, more like haiku than valor or effort. No moment to waste, economy of living, each syllable counts. Why does all this matter? Well, reflecting on the different ways in which deaths can have value is important for those uh, like some of my colleagues who work in, in paediatric palliative care who are here tonight. We may not always be able to prevent premature death, but good quality palliative care can improve the subjective experience of those who are dying, respect where possible their wishes and preferences, support their family, and avoid prolonging their dying fate. It's also ethically important since these different ways in which deaths can be good or bad may come into conflict. Some deaths may be better in one way but worse in others. I've suggested that this sense, this temporal sense, uh, to the value of death, if it makes any sense that it's better to die at a particular time, that dying should not be prolonged, even if it's not associated with pain, that's not the only thing or the most important thing to consider. It needs to be weighed against other considerations like the wishes of the patient, those of the family members. Sometimes that value may need to be forsaken or compromised. However, clarifying that it's a value to be weighed may be helpful, particularly in some of these cases relating to those uh, with profound brain injury whose subjective experience may be minimal or absent and who may not have wishes of their own to consider. It was concerned for the value of health death that led me to spend a long time talking with Bianca and Tom. It was clear to me that they were in different places, that they had different ideas about what might be important, about what could actually be done. I was afraid that I would be compelled to put out onto a ventilator, though that seemed to me the wrong thing to do. But a short while later, when I spoke to them again, the conversation took a different turn. Now it was Tom's turn to be quiet, while Bianca spoke up. She told me that they did not want health to die, but they did not want him to suffer either. 
They talked more about the ventilation come to a shared feeling that if it was merely going to prolong his dying, that they did not want to put him through. We spoke more about what things we could do to help ensure that Hal was comfortable, about the things that would be important for them to do with him while they were. That afternoon, both parents spent time at Hal's bedside holding him to their chest, reading to him. Tom brought in a guitar, sang a song for his son. They arranged for several family members to visit. Another family went religious, the hospital chaplain came and said a blessing for her. Hal's breathing seemed easier with a low dose of morphine. That night, Bianca and Tom were able to sleep in one of our parent accommodation rooms with him in a pot beside them. It was the only time they had had anything like a normal experience of being their newborn son. We had hoped that Hal might be able to go to our local specialised children's hospice, the very special Helen Douglas House, the next day, but by mid-morning it was clear that wasn't going to be possible. He died around lunchtime in his parents' Hal had, I think, a good death. He was comfortable, as far as I could tell, not in pain. His parents were grateful for the time that they could spend with him and the memories they had of his last 24 hours. We did not prolong his life, but neither did we prolong his time. To conclude this evening, given everything I've said, I'm extremely conscious about not overstaying my welcome and going on too long. I'm going to finish uh, with uh, a short, another short piece of music, as, as Anna suggested, sometimes music uh, can capture what words cannot. A Scottish violinist Neil Gow, probably the most famous Scottish fiddle player of all time, was born, lived his whole life in a small village uh, in Perthshire. He lived a long life, overlapping with Schubert and dying at age 79 in 1807. <coughs> Two years before he died, his wife of 37 years, Margaret, died. They've been having married for a long time, and Gal was so stricken by this that he stopped playing music at all for some time. Uh, on picking up his instrument again in tribute to his wife, Gal wrote the following piece of music. Although this is labelled a lament, Gal's melody is neither maudlin nor morose. It is, perhaps, a, a musical expression of hope in the face of death and loss. Thank you. 